Welcome back, podcast listeners. That opening music makes me smile every time I hear it. Today we're coming to you with a sound installation by Vincent Dusenia, made in an abandoned mine in Luxembourg. And like a lot of the other sound installations we open with, it was found over at Radio Apparee. The wet, rainy, sloshing through the earth vibe of this recording seemed perfect to match both the rainy day in Southern California that this podcast is getting recorded, as well as the very rainy Orlando in which the original interviews were recorded. The next few interviews on the podcast were made at the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, which happens every year in Orlando. It's run by the International Association for the Fantastic and the Arts, and that's an international organization around for about 37 years now that's dedicated to the fantastic in all areas of the arts and culture. So a great mix of writers and scholars and artists of all kinds coming together in Orlando, about 500 of us this year, to celebrate fantasy and science fiction, horror, all the genres in which we explore our inner imaginings. Recording live at an event like the International Conference was a really wonderful opportunity to do some intimate conversations, a little bit less stunted sometimes than Skype, certainly being in the same room and being able to chat about things that you're very passionate about is a wonderful opportunity. And because this event brought together scholars and artists from around the world, it was a good time to get them in conversation about things that are important to us here at the podcast. So I want to thank everybody that met with me and did an interview, all the interviews that we've set up in the future. And I want to get to today's interview just as soon as humanly possible. Um, George Reed is a young scholar, composer, artist, musicologist at Kingston University. Now we can hear them walking through the mine behind us. It's fun. It's like someone's walking in Wellington boots through my studio. Huh. Anyway, so George Reed is a young scholar, composer, musicologist, and he will introduce himself. I want to say that he will refer to several scholars and some theories in his conversation, including nomad theory. For any topic that's mentioned on the podcast, just go check the show notes. We'll make sure you get linked up to all the sources if you want to do further reading about Nomad Theory or Chiptune or the history of low-tech and high-tech. We will certainly provide you with any information. George has a great set of Chiptune examples up on his SoundCloud account, so we will also link you to those as well as any other pieces or compositions that are mentioned in the interview. So without further ado, let's go to Orlando and George Reed and enjoy both the conversation and his music. We are here in Orlando. Beautiful, um, beautiful? (laughs) <laughs> yes, just full stop. Beautiful. At the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts. And my guest today on the podcast is George Reed. 
And I'm going to let him introduce himself because um, he's good at that. And uh, we'll do just a fine job of that. Um, but also uh, because uh, your interests are so varied and your mm -hmm. research topics are so plentiful that, you know, give us sort of an overall idea of what you're thinking about and working on right now. And then we'll sort of get Go into the... There. Yeah, no we'll worries. take it from there. Exactly. So I am a PhD student at Kingston University. It began last October. Um, I am looking currently at the chiptune fan identity itself through the lens of nomadic subjectivity. And where my research is going, especially for the paper I gave at Orlando, it's looking at chiptune crossovers. So wherein it will be a chiptune aesthetic presented, but also mm -hmm. say if it was a cover of um, a Doctor Who theme or you know popular music recontextualization. Yes, right. famous themes. Um, and how nomadic subjectivity accounts for these cross-genre and, you know, cross, or crossing of um, cultural boundaries and fandom locations. Now, for people who are not, I mean, obviously the Sounds Curious podcast is dedicated to adventurous listening. So we automatically assume that our audience has familiarity with many obscure genres. But uh -huh. for somebody who doesn't have experience with chiptune, how would you introduce them to this musical oh, okay. genre? Okay. So chiptune is the genre of music mostly associated with the early years of video gaming. Right. Um, you know, so early video game consoles like the Sega Mega Drive, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Going back as far as Atari? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, right, so if I'd say as far back as Atari, right through to the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, it's now synonymous with, you know, vintage arcade machines and these consoles. Very much so. So composing it, uh, the contemporary chiptune fandom composes it through either um, programming on these consoles or hardware hacking, or you can now buy emulators that emulate the sound chip. It's amazing to me now that we can buy, you know, um, <laughs> we can buy thousands of dollars worth of software mods and plugins that right. will recreate an 8-bit sound. <laughs> exactly. You pay more for distinctly less in terms of, you know, but it's it's a beautiful less, if anything. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's also... Um, you know, and one of the things that I hope we get into in the conversation today, too, as well, is this interesting relationship that fandom and popular music have with technologies mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, you're talking about no, talking about nomad theory, but also <laughs> the the kind of claiming of this early technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly. I was thinking as well, actually, I, I was going to add even though I, I mostly use software sometimes because there is no way in hell I am taking a soldering iron to my Sega Mega Drive. I would, <laughs> I would rather, oh my God, I get nightmares about such things. But, but yes, I mean, it's, it's interesting to, to understand people who, you know, have this kind of, a, 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 an area in my research that really fascinates me is people that within contemporary Egyptian culture who weren't, there or around during the uh, early days of video gaming but if mm -hmm. they do listen to chiptune they say oh i i experienced or this is so nostalgic and it's like or they, they weren't even or they weren't there you know i find that really fascinating so a lot of my research is also directing towards discovering the nature of this nostalgia whether it is whether it actually can be classed as nostalgia or whether they use it as perhaps more of a lay term for what that feeling is you know certainly nostalgia for a place you've never been for a mm -hmm. time you were not a part of is interesting and problematic as a cultural phenomenon. Uh -huh. I'm glad we actually hit on that so early because one of the things that, you know, I was honored enough to hear your paper 
oh, thank you. Um, on chiptunes, <laughs> and uh, and it was wonderful. Um, the uh, one of the things that really really struck me was when we think about popular music in general, and and I'm going to rely a bit here on Simon Reynolds and his book Retromania. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in terms of pop culture's obsession with recycling, and he points mm -hmm. to this moment in 1965 when pop music ceased to look forward mm -hmm. and began very much looking backwards and plundering not only its distant past, but its very recent past. Mm -hmm. What I find so interesting about Chiptune, and one of the things that to me sets it apart from other fandoms and from other kinds of these sort of niche technological right. musics, is that it is unlike so many... It, it is so identifiable with a place Dis and time. Distinct, you know, especially, I think, as well, when we were talking about Tambra the other day, because it's yes. the 8-bit aesthetic in itself is so distinct, even to people who aren't so familiar with video gaming or, you know, whether they are such big fans of video gaming or know the history, that mm -hmm. they hear, you know, the, that little ditty from Super Mario Brothers, they can instantly, you know... Which every DJ we've ever known has spun into at uh -huh. least one set. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's de rigueur now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's, it is so interesting that we have this... Uh, <laughs> that we have this kind of, um, on the one hand, this endless recycling, and yet on the other hand, here's chiptunes, which is absolutely of a moment, mm -hmm. cannot be recycled into... Uh, can't, what am I trying to say? It can't really be... Um, it's not folded into other genres at the same time. It is distinct. Mm -hmm. It is... And yes, I think the timbre is incredibly important. Why don't you talk for a second about what it is in the chiptune timbre? And of course, people listening to the podcast, um, for you audience members out there, of course, we're going to have uh, lots and lots of musical examples in the <laughs> podcast itself. So you, uh, you, know, you can either listen to the explanation and then go listen to the music, or you can listen to the music and then come back and hear the explanation. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I could do it justice on its own. I think examples certainly are needed. Um, but when we're going, I mean, it's just so, I guess it's possibly because it's just the way it's composed, usually, you are limited. And in, at times you have four channels. One of them is white noise, which you have to filter or sequence for any you know, impression of percussion. Mm -hmm. And then three other channels that you can assign different sine waves to. And, you know, especially with that console chip tune, which is sound synthesis based. Not so much tracker chip tune, but that, that also has its limitations. But... Um, it's that recognition of this has been almost like, it's like composition on a budget almost. You know, you have limited resources, limited sonic resources. And Mick a, composition. Yes. <laughs> and um, it's, I guess it's that recognition that it's, it's not polished studio piece, you know? It's, it's almost, if that makes sense. It's it so, really does. And suddenly, as soon as you say, you know, that it's really sort of challenging the slick... It, it's not sort of, it doesn't immediately give the impression of a studio production, or if it is a studio production, it's a studio in somebody's garage. And then we link that back to, um, I think, immediately a punk and uh -huh. punk's reaction to Slick. Uh -huh. Well, interestingly, Malcolm McLaren did t touch on chiptune um, subculture and how, you know, it's that DIY aspect, like hacking into Game Boys and subverting them and into, the, into becoming circuit instruments. Bending. Circuit bending, which is fabulous, need I say more. Um, but I was thinking as well, it's, it's almost like a genre of music that thrives on its imperfections in 
That's a beautiful of, thing to say. You know, in how, especially with tracker chip tunes, which for those listening, if any of you are familiar with you know, home computers like the Commodore Amiga, who, which would have had a tracker program and it takes, if you think of music of um, Art of Noise, you know, those you know, those vocal vowel sounds they had, which sound which obviously would have been played on the Fairlight sampler. So you the Fairlight CMI, right, we miss right. you. Oh, God, again, <laughs> I, the software recreation is sitting on my laptop. You know, so, um, so you know, there's very there are recognizable sounds, but just you know, disjointed in the way that they because obviously they were played on the keyboard. So, in the way that tracker music works, is that very small eight bit samples which if you play just the sample by itself, it's not necessarily musical and often there'll be drum hits and so forth. And the tracker sequencer will play them, you know, you, you sequence them to make it sound musical and then via hexadecimal coding, you can add vibrato, tremolo, so forth. Old school. So, exactly. And it's, but because obviously you are doing such things by hexadecimal coding and it's not a human, you know, like, you know, how you do vibrato on it, like, you know, like a flute or something or... Mm -hmm. It's, which is recognizable as, a, as an expression performed by a human. This is a machine mm -hmm. doing it. And therefore there are aliases that pop up and little crackles in the samples and unusual sample, you know, and obviously, so I think that lends a lot to. The errors that, actually become a part of the aesthetic. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it's the, it's the aesthetic of, of lo-fi and, um, and, yeah, and, and almost glitch art. You know, yes. It's an early really example of glitch oh, art. Yeah, and glitch, glitch art I also partake in as well. So I think it's, um, very much the, these areas of my interests, you know. Also, obviously, at the time, this was cutting-edge technology. Lest we forget. Lest we forget. Um, and I still own my Amiga as Yay. well, with one megabyte of memory, which is... We've just... already used more than one megabyte of memory. Oh, Christ. Recording so this, today. So, oh, so... <laughs> that really puts it into perspective, I feel. Yes. But, um, but of course, and, you know, and it's, it's uh, now a dearly yellowing plastic machine sitting in my bedroom. But, of course, at the time, it would have been... The forefront of and and the, and the video games that were on it and the, and the chip tunes that were coming out of it were oh my god you know this is but if, it's interesting that it's gone from exciting new technological breakthrough in video game soundtrack to specifically to do with retro gaming and you know and even though people still compose in that style it's not advanced in any way. That's interesting and and I mean certainly chip tune at least as far as I can tell has taken on, I mean, as you said, as you said, it has um, been kind of separated out from simply gamer culture. Uh -huh. And now it's participating in, I think, a kind of larger pop music conversation 
about the advancement of technology since I'm going to say about the 80s. Uh -huh. And I'm specifically talking, I mean, they've just made a web version of the 909. Uh -huh. and, you know, we've got web versions of the 808. So suddenly we have a Chrome can now facilitate MIDI. So in <clears throat> essence, those yellowing boxes, which were so incredibly, they were physical representations at the time of mm -hmm. something massively new. Mm -hmm. Now they're invisible. In general, there are software recreations either on the web or on our, on our computers. And so in a strange way, we have an ownership of them that, for instance, when we did it on the original machines, we were in partnership with the machine and the right. foibles of the machine and the problems with the machine became a part. Mm -hmm. Now we have these pristine recreations. Exactly. But even, even attempt to make the, recreate the problems of the machine, you know, I think. I, another example of this, um, I recently um, purchased an emulation of the Lynn drum machine, which is just the quintessential 80s drum machine, in my opinion. But, um, but it, it makes an effort to include the aliases of the samples and, you know, with, and certain algorithms of how the original machine would have worked to make it sound that, that, you know, that crisp lo-fi edge and the snare is slightly displaced to give it that, you know, that, that feel. Which is interesting. I think that's really interesting, and it's and it's listed as a marketing point that it sounds, as you know, it's it's it can do. It sounds like it's doing less than you know Absolutely. current technology Absolutely, you're is paying doing. more for it for, to sound yeah. worse. <laughs> exactly, which is beautiful. Absolutely, I think so. I think Chiptune is very much in that vein. Now, your work specifically, and this is one of the things that really interests me about him about it is not just on Chiptune, and it's very interesting genesis and all of the implications of it. You're also really interested in the fans. Mm -hmm. And in particular, um, you've talked about, um, certainly in the past, I've heard you talk about chiptune and, and affect, uh -huh. um, ways in which fans of this music um, express their identity with it, through it, Mm -hmm. um, in turn, contribute to this culture. Mm -hmm. So how do you see fandom as an integral level of this phenomenon within the culture? I think, going back to the affect, and that was, that because that was the paper I gave last year uh, on my MA research, and that the affect, the use of affect theory was to understand the translation of the subjectivity. Really mm, say more about that. That's really yeah, interesting. So obviously, so I, I, it's it's really important to state in such things that uh, even when you touch on such things as authenticity, that it's yes. always subjective. Yes. And what you know, one man's authenticity is another man's garbage, kind of thing. You know, and so I think it was a recognition that for that individual fan or creative fan who was creating chiptune, they would have their ideas of what is authentic. Yes. But another fan could recognize, obviously, recognize what they are presenting and if they recognize certain elements then that's when you know they say oh this is this is me this represents me it appeals to me so now moving on into nomadic subjectivity and I mentioned my sonic cartography idea in the paper that it's like a, a map of traces you know that are recognized so I think as the fandom operates it's, it's important to understand them as a collective but with individual subjectivities and this map making if that makes sense so that came across in my paper but and, mm -hmm. and I want to take a minute and, and go into that because for people who listen to the podcast, you know that one of the things that we do every week 
uh, in every episode is we take a field recording um, mm -hmm. from some place in the world and we put ourselves into that space in the opening of the podcast. Uh -huh. And nomadic subjectivity, your conception of nomadic subjectivity and sonic cartography. Now for people who are adventurous listeners, their ears are going to prick up when they hear sonic cartography. Yes, so yes. Talk, talk a little bit about that. I do apologize for throwing all of these terms out there. It's that, my job to it's, help yes, it's, facilitate it's, the process. It's a, a horrible insight into my head. <laughs> um, so nomadic subjectivity as defined by Rosie Bradotti, mm -hmm. who gives an outline for a, a nomadic individual. And then she... Um, mostly bases her nomadic project in feminist theory. So her um, vision for this subject is somebody who has relinquished all desire for fixity. Right. Is it, is the house it, in the suburbs, the white right. picket fence. Exactly. And she and on such things, she also describes a pseudo-nomadism in that you have your job and your high earning and stuff, and but you think going on holiday is a form of nomadic subjectivity, you know, only to return to your... Wi-Fi. You know, right, and your, so forth. So it's also an individual that um, strives to create empowering spaces of belonging and affirmation. Mm. So, and in particular, she also describes it as, um, it's, it's an invitation to do so away from phallogocentric systems and thinking. So if, um, if a dominant vision of a subject in a society is a white male heterosexual Christian mm -hmm. and if that particular society states that if you are any other you know if you are not even one of these things you are other and therefore lesser right so immediately lesser immediately lesser. so it's about if you are viewed as other and lesser it's about empowering yourself as other but positively distinguished other if that mm -hmm. makes sense um, and she also includes the metaphor of map making and that Which is you, fascinating. So yeah. how does she use, is this an individual map? Is this a, a mental map? Is this a, a, a collective map from a group that is constructed of others? Or is this... Mm -hmm. So, it, well, the map, as I said, is, is very metaphorical. But yes. what you touched on, it's, it's, as in a map of others, when she uses it in the context of feminism, it's about, I think recognizing you know the what the suffering of women and recognizing what other women go through as a feminist you know and mm -hmm. and that becomes like a shared constructed genealogy in a way so that's the recognition of you know these traces and uh, i think where i want to go with it perhaps is that this map can be individual but it is for the self and for other in that sense interesting so if we take so uh, going moving on to my sonic cartography idea the idea that this map is a musical composition. So if a fan were to compose a chip tune, this is, a, a, you know, the result of sonic cartography. It is a map of traces. And Bedotti defines the traces in these maps showing where this individual has been, mm. you know, geopolitical um, and cultural locations and one's believed sense of genealogy. Right, those, those senses of context that all of us negotiate at many, many levels uh -huh. at once. Uh -huh. So, you know, even the choice of what era of chiptune you are composing, whether you choose to mix it with, say, Doctor Who, if right. you, you know, th these are all traces you have put into your sonic map, you know, in, and she also describes 
um, metaphorical sonic ink. Oh no, sorry, I describe sonic ink. Excuse me, getting ahead of myself. Don't describe but, your ideas to no, someone else. Oh dear, that's, <laughs> that is that is big no-no. Pardon me. But um, so yes, excuse me. Bradotti describes a, a metaphorical invisible ink, yes. right? That these maps are made out of, and I cast that as sonic ink, as mm-hmm. in uh, genre choices, instrumental choices. What you, you know? So these are all make up the map. So of course. That's where the Chiptune fan identity as the self, I think, as the subject, the subjectivity comes across in this map. And when other fans access it, they read these traces and they understand and recognize these traces as a, as a shared and similar experience. A language that transcends words that's happening through the shared, through the sharing of this sonic ink uh-huh. with members of the community, for those who have ears to hear. Yeah, exactly. Although I don't want that to be in any way exclusionary. No, and actually I think, to a certain extent, do you feel that, for instance, my, as a composer, I I create pieces of music and I love the idea of thinking of them as sort of maps created with sonic ink. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. That's, that, that appeals to me a lot. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm always, the music, once it leaves me, is no longer mine. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I think you're getting at in this, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's not simply the creation of these maps. It's also, you know, they're not simply created for, they're not created for the person who's creating them. Although, no, I'm not want to say that. What am I trying to say? But they are created both for the person who has created this piece of music, as well as, a community mm-hmm. and in essence forming that community through the very process of sharing mm-hmm. okay am i anywhere you are okay you good. Are, please good, i'm good. so i'm, I'm glad i was i was very very happy <laughs> um so yeah and it's you know or that is that recognition of the traces that i would say in the map that form the community and it's so very much it's it's a it's a continuation of shiptune culture through what the individual will do to create the map and they can include traces of where they have been in terms of media. So mm-hmm. again, back to the Doctor Who example, not only does it show that an involvement in chiptune subculture and possibly the halcyon days of video gaming, it also right. shows an involvement with Doctor Who.
sorry. <laughs> There's such a like a dismissal. Like as soon as you say fandom, now you say it with a British accent. So immediately everyone oh. listening at home is going to think that it's fine because you say, you know, when I say <laughs> fandom and it, you know, with my American patois, um, obviously, you know, people are instantly moved to reject uh -huh. it because fandom is silly. Uh -huh. And girly. And fanatical, apparently. And fanatical. And it's associated with teenage girls right. and people who don't have a life and, uh -huh. you know, live in their parents' basements uh -huh. and et cetera, uh -huh. et cetera, et cetera. So just for those of you listening at home, neither of us live in our parents' basements. Um, no. And and yes, we do really enjoy gay music. So <laughs> And as that. a British person, I feel like I should be sat here with tea. <laughs> and I do have a gap in my teeth. <laughs> For those of you wondering, I do have a gap in my teeth. So you can all feel And I'm irretrievably queer. There you go. So irretrievably. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. Well, I can, no, well, that's perfect. <clears throat> mm. No, and I think that is, um, I think, you know, getting to the idea of queer here, because one of the things that I wanted to say before we were so rudely interrupted <laughs> was, you know, here we are talking about you know, the creation of these alternate communities, you know, reading of traces, all of these exceedingly feminist things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and really we can read them as post-colonial, we can read them as, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the mm -hmm. destruction of the idea of centered subjectivity, you know, the idea that each one of us is somehow the center of the universe, yada, 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 and that our uh -huh. perceptions are somehow applicable to anyone else. Um, and, and we're talking about game music. So right. let's back up for a second yeah. <laughs> and talk about the fact that in, you know, particularly in American culture, I'm really not sure that, um, about European culture, but in American culture, gaming is absolutely marked as male, 12 to, you know, 8 to 35, you uh -huh. know, sort of major demographic um, as being a primarily heterosexual, you uh -huh. know, or heteronormative. Uh-huh. So here we are talking about all of these fabulously feminist and queer things. Yes. So, you know, here's the elephant in the room. So is chiptune any of these things? Is it male? Is it heteronormative? Is it? <clears throat> and, and how does this work counteract this, you know, almost pervasive notion? It's interesting what you were saying about the... I mean, a lot of European gamers I know have this image of the American gamer in such a way, in, interestingly, as in like, you know, that, that archetype of, you know, that age group and possibly, yes. which is, you know. And again, living like, in parents' basements, sweatpants. Which is a shame. Know. It really is. I feel. Um, Chiptune, interestingly, I mean, there seems to be a lot, a lot of the sites I'm on, like, who still celebrate the Amiga demo scene and such things, there is a good mix I would mm -hmm. say. I'd say there are usually more male members, mm -hmm. but it's, I wouldn't ever say it was in any way just, you know, what you'd expect from that kind of male-dominated, perhaps, subculture. Yeah. And I think the queerness sometimes, if, you know, the term perhaps as an absolute rejection of contemporary, you know, and, you know, current trends in music perhaps and specifically going back to that time through that composition right i think the queerness perhaps comes in there largely and also if because queer chiptune fans are something i would like to possibly do as a side project and the affirmation of because you know and fandom is perhaps a vehicle for those who are marginalized very much so. which That's... i think jenkins henry jenkins brought up in a text i was reading recently um, you know, where they can make a space for themselves through their creativity and that it's, 
their concerns can be heard in a way, I think. Which is, when you think about it, I like the, I mean, obviously I have the connotation with things like circuit bending and that, uh -huh. that extends to um, chiptune in essence, you know, and I'm, I'm going to sort of date myself now, but in essence, um, you know, back in the day, the people who had the fancy equipment and the expensive synthesizers were not, you know, we young, queer, you know, uh -huh. um, radicals. With and no so, money. <laughs> with no money. We were, you know, we made music out of these things because this is what we right. could afford. Right. So automatically, I think of it as kind of an outlaw sort of music. But then when I go to a major club in Los Angeles and I hear somebody, you know, sort of like spin a chip tune, you uh -huh. know, a break, it's always in the break. They never actually try and do anything with it. They just mix it into the break. Right. But DJs, up your game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hardly agree But, I, you know, nonetheless, I, it's, it is, it is very much this, um, because it's a subculture, mm -hmm. because it's a poor subculture, because it's a subculture with limited access to the fancy technology, uh -huh. there's also an implicit kind of rebellious mm -hmm. stance. Yes, I, I think that's what McLaren touched upon as well. But also interesting, like what you were saying about not being able to get hold of the fancier technology, with some consoles being so rare, it actually costs so much to get hold of them, you know? So the software even though some people will argue, well, it's not so authentic to compose on software, which I guess it's understandable from their point of view, but it's more so convenience. Because a lot of fans who want to get involved with it are not going to be a dab hand with a soldering iron. Or, I mean, I nearly lost my deposit last year for my house for ruining the carpet with solder and God knows, God knows what. <laughs> Don't try this so, at home. No, I, yeah, just, no. <laughs> just, just no. You know, so unless you have you know, laminate flooring or something. Exactly. Like I don't or, know. <laughs> yeah. or you don't need your security No furniture back. whatsoever and, <laughs> and a nice landlord maybe. But, um, so that's, I find that interesting, you know, even though it's, it wants to, it wants to get at that, you know, the, the very basic technology, but sometimes that costs through the roof. But Nowadays, yes. Symbolic, exactly. I guess in a symbolic nature, it is very much that, you know, getting to that what we would have had with not much money and having to make do and like producing music that is so evidently limited by its technological constraints. So it's like techno-politics, you know, I think it is. And in a strange way, you know, I mean, I think, obviously, you know, I think about retrofuturism and mm -hmm. sort of how it um, tries to, you know, how it often ends up in that very precarious position where, you know, the people who were using the technology when it first came out and the people who were creating these things just as fans and for their own enjoyment, um, you know, now to recreate their acts of, you know, creative genius, we have to go spend five or six times as much money to go buy, <laughs> mm. you know, software emulators for mm -hmm. the very machines that they were just trying to pick up the swap meet or the, t mm -hmm. you know, the boot sale or, you know, whatever... <laughs> whatever you have where you live, yes. you know, the the jumble sale. Um, and so now we have, you know, very um, exceedingly upper middle class or upper class or very successful musicians who are going back and trying to emulate this style, which is best known for its simplicity. And, you know, let's, let's face it, it's kind of jankiness. It's a good word. It's a very good word. Janky. Like, we'll just say it. I think, I mean, when you said that, I visualized 
the word janky in pixels. So, you know, that's, that could possibly just be how my brain works. <laughs> but don't take that. But, I mean, yeah, I, I guess, because popular music uses of chiptune, I mean, if it's, it's what you were saying about how earlier in the podcast, when you, that chiptune doesn't change in the sense that it's chiptune that changes other music. Yes. So if you, with the Doctor Who examples I was playing in my paper, chiptune took Doctor Who and spat it out as a, you know, like it like it was straight out of the something on the Nintendo Entertainment System, you know. Absolutely, and it will never be first Doctor Who and second chiptune. Uh-huh. It will always be first chiptune, uh-huh. then Doctor Who. And I guess that's why Tambra comes back, because yes. what hit you immediately when that sample played, or I hope it hit the audience, was that it was, you know, like the white noise was simulating an explosion, and, you know, it was... The bass line was, you know, sequenced within an inch of its life on a single square wave, you know, and such things. And stereo had to be programmed in hexadecimal coding and so forth. Like, it's, yeah, it's very much chiptune first, I think. So when it comes to a, like, a more popular music use of chiptune, and some fans don't like it, so if, you know, if it's like a drum and bass that includes um, some chiptune. I can't I imagine guess. trying to wobble an 8-bit, people. It's, no, <laughs> and I, I also don't recommend that for anybody listening. It sounds painful. So. It might it's, actually hurt I, Yeah, I, it might, sounds like it requires yoga classes or something, <laughs> I'm not sure. But, but um, wobbling an 8-bit. <laughs> wobbling an 8-bit is yeah, not easy. Yeah, my, an autobiography, possibly. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, I, I think it's possibly because the because chiptune is very much, so much about in and of itself, and the time. If it's mixed in with drum and bass, which will largely be about the conventions of that genre, with a sprinkling of chiptune thrown in, they just, it just doesn't, I don't, I guess it just, as, a, as a sonic map of drum and bass, there's too few traces for these people, you know, and then it just doesn't oh, that's so click with these people, do you think? I'd... No, and I think, you know, what you're saying really, I mean, we've, you know, and we've danced around the idea of timbre, you know, tone, color, the the and obviously in in the pilot episode we talked about in the discussion of Mario Davidovsky, um, you know the fact that my piece sympathetic resonance you know was mm-hmm. in four movements attack sustain decay and release uh-huh. named after the four parts of any sound they create the envelope of a sound and for instance if you cut the attack off of a violin it's very difficult to tell. Right. A violin from a flute. Mm-hmm. Um, if you cut the attack off, I mean, if you if you play the same note and cut the attack off on four separate instruments, say trombone, violin, clarinet, and French horn, mm-hmm. it will be exceedingly difficult to tell the difference without mm-hmm. the attack. And so, chiptune, because all you get in is essence the, is, is the attack. attack yes that's interesting you really are like you're not even working with the other parts mm. of the sound mm-hmm. and so i th- i think to a certain extent if you try and mix that in with something like drum and bass where the sound envelopes are so much more it's it's like a, a you know like giving it more expression than it probably would have been originally capable of it's perhaps where it perhaps loses some of its identity very much so. And then well, I, you know, yeah. I think back to, um, you know, and I think back to how, you know, let's look at the, the million proliferations and, you know, of genres of electronic dance music, for instance, uh-huh. when we have these very complex, ta- you know, when we have the ability to sequence things, when we have very sophisticated um, synthesis technology, when we have these wonderful, wonderful samples, I mean, 
um, we have in essence so much to work with that the genres get exploded from the inside out as we uh -huh. push each of these things it ends up kind of pushing out the out of the genre boundaries and into another one so now we have liquid drum and bass and drum and bass uh -huh. and you know it's, it's so it's this proliferation and what i find so fascinating about chiptune and i'm sure it comes back to the sound the, the sound the tone color is that chiptune cannot push beyond itself uh -huh. i think it's I'm afraid I forgot who said this, and I apologize, but they said it's very much with pushing, it's like pushing boundaries but respecting limits, in a sense. So interesting. The limit will always be there, I think. But I guess, and I'm a firm believer in limiting creative, like, you know, what you can work with, I think, for, or for me personally, it it's, helps me be more creative if I have a limited, um, it's, you know, palette. And I think that, I mean, recently, some people who I'm, composing for, they are working on a modded version of one of the original Resident Evil games. Because uh, there was a demo of, uh, they call it in fan circles, it's called Resident Evil 1.5, which was scrapped by Capcom. Somebody leaked it, and fans have got hold of it. So they're recreating the rest of the game, but with distinctly retro elements that hark back to um, the early years of Resident Evil, and there's also a side project that um, takes one of the lesser known of the series, Resident Evil Survivor, and makes it into a third person, because it, it was a first person shooter and didn't go down too well. So when they asked me to compose, and they wanted that distinctly, you know, PlayStation 1 sound, and you know, and I mean, William Cheng calls it mediocre, which I think is beautiful. Ooh. Really nice. That's lovely. So it was a case of having lo-fi, piano samples and the one sample would be stretched over the entire length of the, you know, so that the sample quality somewhat degenerates. And so I think that having those limits really inspired the creativity of that. And I would say that chiptune is very much the same, you know, having four channels to build up a piece and one channel is specifically white noise to, you know, create percussion and so forth. I mean, that's, that's the bare minimum needed for Western harmony. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I mean, obviously with software though, you can have numerous channels that you, you, know, you can work with, but if you really want to, I think limiting really does inspire creativity. Well, and what's interesting about this, and this has also come up in um, other conversations, specifically at the International Association for the Fantastic and the Arts, because this is a... <laughs> Can't say that enough. No, no. Very, well, very much a broad spectrum of writers and thinkers and, you know, people involved in film and television and music and, and performance of all kinds, as well as literature and horror literature and young mm -hmm. adult literature. So, so we're, we're drawing from a broad palette. And there was a very interesting discussion. And in fact, there's going to be another interview on the podcast uh, with Tom Reese, uh, who's also talking about video games. Uh -huh. And... Um, it was really interesting to see how uh, modern games, particularly the exploratory games, so the, the games in which they create quintillion uh -huh. worlds of uh -huh. endless exploration. So in a strange way, do you think chiptune, do you think the limitations are comforting in a world of technology <laughs> that seems ever expanding both in space and time? I would certainly say so. And it, uh, someone once even described chiptune 
as homely in a way, you know, I guess. I don't know if that's possibly the nostalgia factor, but it's comforting. I well, it was, it was certainly <laughs> something that you experienced. Once games moved from the arcade into the home uh-huh. with these early consoles, it, there certainly was a big domestication. Uh-huh. And so I do think, you know, I, I would definitely consider any kind of game-inspired music to be a very much a kind of domestic, uh-huh. which also kind of sets it apart as other for right. Western composers right. where domestic is, you know, right. unimportant. and Right. Know. Certainly. And I think as well, because Tom's paper is fabulous, and when he was touching on um, the mundane in video games or such things as Papers, Please, and, you know, where it's... Cart Life. Yes, where it's, it's very much... You have such a limited set of things to do and really plays on, you know, the mundane factor... But the limits are there. And I think that it's, I guess, I mean, even as a gamer myself, there are times when I I think such things as Fallout is a little big for me. I know that sounds really awful, but I, I, can't, I can't personally get to grips with such things. You know, just give me, give me a 2D platformer any day. But, I completely but, um, get it. It's, yeah, just that, just that ginormous expanse of, you know, and just, even though they are beautiful, don't get me wrong. And what they Visually, do, they are extra stunning. Yes, and it's but there's just so much to you know, possibility and things to do. I I personally like having set, but that, again that could be me. But it, it having set, you know, and knowing what you can and can't possibly do, and yeah, but and then I think very much with chip tune, it's having that comfort zone of what you can work with, even though you you can still do very innovative and generative things. You still have that. Well, I don't want to say safety net, but it's you know that familiarity of what. It's, is I would say safety net. Yeah. I think that's actually a good way to put it. Or or, or comfort blanket. Comfort blanket. Yes. <laughs> you have your comfort pixel blanket. blanket. Your pixel blanket. But it's it, it. There is this interesting. And now you know I'm I'm talking a little more broadly about music. Um, you know the shift from say about 2005 until now so for the last 10 years. I mean there really has been this crisis of possibilities Uh and I'm seeing it ripple out through artistic culture as well as politics and you know we have endless possibilities suddenly Mm -hmm. and so when I was trying to ask myself not having been an early gamer although having certainly very much enjoyed them I never I can't remember what level I made it to in Mario but anyway (laughs) um (laughs) I wish I could remember that but anyway um but in the early days for me I found the experience, particularly of 8-bit games, to be so comforting. Uh-huh. Because in the great big wide world of endless possibilities, only having three notes and one percussion track uh-huh. actually invokes a kind of domestic simplicity and comfort. It's why grilled cheese sandwiches will <laughs> never... <laughs> be the wrong choice when right. you need that's, comforting. That's, that is, I'm taking that to my grave. <laughs> that's wonderful. Chiptune is very much, and I'm and I was trying to figure out why that is. And now it's, that we've hit upon this notion of kind of that comfortable reinforcement of limitation uh-huh. and working within it. <clears throat> no, I very much agree. It's it's almost as though because I was just thinking about being lost in a. You know, like, I even find such things as logic sometimes slightly. They think, oh, my Christ, I have all this stuff. Right? And, 
you know, and, Pro Tools I can do, yeah, right. 800 plugins to choose right. from, and yeah. And I think that's why I was, you know, a lot of my composition, especially with chiptune, and I also like composing retro wave and um, cold wave synth music that very much harks back to um, the early 80s. The DX7. Oh, yes. gosh. <laughs> my favorite machine oh, of all time. Oh, God. I was lucky enough. I remember one of my old um, college lecturers brought one in. And I didn't go outside for a while. No. <laughs> it was just so... They're even holy. They're programming holy. it is a bitch. But FM synthesis is beautiful. I We actually so. had a Yamaha TX-816, which was, was essentially... The box, wasn't it? It was the rack of four DX7s that uh -huh. you could program on the old Mac SE with <laughs> the opcode editor librarian <clears throat> in the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Studio through the... <laughs> Through the analog mixing board. I'm so envious. <laughs> I wouldn't so be. So envious. But... Well, I mean, I guess, as well, for someone who's, I mean, I'm only 23, and I feel a, a nostalgia for the 80s, even though I wasn't there, and how dare I feel a nostalgia, in a sense, for such times. But I want to compose music that evokes that, you know, not just the music that was going on at the time, some, you know, the, the trends in art and style and if i can evoke patrick nagel through a drum machine pattern alone perfect we'll, <laughs> you know we'll, we'll I mean, all do it <laughs> yes that's so well and, and i think about the cobalt blue color that eve klein suddenly shot in and the bauhaus revival in furniture <laughs> and of course you know fashion and clothing and you know we love yeah. we love goths and new you know we we love the 80s and and new romanticism oh in, in, just you know music that will evoke memories of staring longingly at Nick Rhodes or something, you know, from Duran Duran and just, and, you know. And yet that, it's funny because it's not the, it's not the harmonies, it's not the melodies in particular. It is very much the sound quality, the timbre, uh -huh. and the sort of overall atmosphere that the technology helped these artists right. create. It's very technologically mediated, I'd say. That's a great Which way to put it. Which is exactly what chiptune is. And in an even more extreme fashion. Oh, certainly. Yeah, even more so. But it was, I mean, going back to when I said I bought this emulation of the limb drum was because with what I could possibly achieve on Logic, even though I, I, do, in, I do like limiting myself, having this, albeit, I mean, an emulation, I could never afford a real one unless I did some very unsavory things for money. <laughs> so um, it's knowing that it is... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I, I, <laughs> I, love I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going to keep that in, though. There's oh, no way that I'm ever cutting that one out. <laughs> I'd like to say hi to my parents at this point. <laughs> Hello, Mom Hello, and Dad. Hello, Mom and Dad. I, I apologize oh, heartily. Oh, Mom and Dad. <laughs> so, um, and I also would like to blame them both for my taste in 80s music. There but, you go. of course, I say blame, but, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Um so knowing that I had, I have an emulation of the Lindrum, which is limited to what it, even though you can, um, it does have extra features and you can change it to later models like the Lin 9000 or the Lin, or the Lindrum, um, the LM2. Um, I think I'd say the LM2 as a, from a geeky point of view, because just because that just harks back to what Jan Hammer used on Miami Vice and I'm such a Miami Vice fan, you know, so it's knowing that that's what it represents, that's what it harks back to, and it still carries its limitations of, and the technology generates a certain timbre and certain sound quality mm -hmm. that immediately is so imminent to that time period. You know, even though I wasn't there myself, I would hope that what I imagine that to be 
and in particular with what you know Simon Frith refers to music as a you know an actualization of your ideas yes so if I imagine my place back then and what sort of life I would have led you know that the music allows for that in the immersion into that music allows for that to be actualized in a way if that makes sense which is and yet we don't you know and, and I don't want anyone listening to think that you know, as composers, we don't think of the violin or the flute as technology. It's just so interesting that the musical technologies that we're talking about have such a powerful time code. Uh-huh. It's the best way I can put it. Time is there's a specific. time code specific. And yet we don't think about, well, you know, I'm nostalgic for the days of the early violin. Uh-huh. Or, you know, oh, oh as soon as days. of the flute when it was, you know, and so we, there are certain instruments that we think of as timeless and other instruments that we think of mm-hmm. as very time bound. And it's interesting how one is taken almost as a given. The violin has always been here. It will always be uh-huh. here. Uh-huh. There's an urgency, I think, in these musics that we're talking about in capturing a moment mm-hmm. as opposed to an era, say, in uh-huh. classical music. You know, we are we have to sort of um, narrow our gaze to smaller and smaller chunks of time. Mm-hmm. And yet it's, I think it's a lot more, it is so much more powerful. It's so much more powerfully effective to play something almost to the month. Yeah. Whereas if you went back and looked at Mozart, I mean, if you wrote it, you know, when he was 23 or 25, it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. Mozart. Mm-hmm. But, right. you know, if you look at something that was composed in, you know, 19, between 1984 and 1989, mm-hmm. the technical revolution had sounds, everything sounded completely right. different. Especially by the late 80s, you know, in comparison. Um, but I think it's interesting what you were saying about it being so time-locked. I mean, I heartily agree. It's almost... Especially with, this is where I think nostalgia perhaps comes in. Mm, so so yeah. time specific, or what, even if what you imagine that time to be like, and that what some chiptune fans claim it to be is nostalgia, even if they weren't there. But some of the, even some of the sweeter ones are so specific as, oh my Christ, this one takes me back to Christmas morning, 1995, when we, my brother and I opened Sonic the Hedgehog, or something, or the second Sonic the Hedgehog. And even, even though that's so sweet, it's interesting below the surface of that it's interesting how it, it's so specific even though it was and I think that was on a chiptune that wasn't from the sonic soundtrack it was somebody that composed using um, instrumental choices that would have so they would have perhaps um, emulated the Sega Mega Drive sound chip and uh, those really low quality drum sounds which I think when I played that example of um, the Doctor Who chip tune that did Westminster Bridge, you were, you, mm-hmm. remember you sat back and went, ah, this is, you know, you recognised. <laughs> so if we understand that as a sonic map and the recognition of these traces, which again, it, it goes so close to Tambra because it's so relatable to Sonic the Hedgehog and the Tambras of, that were used in that game, that individual recognised these traces that were in the sonic map, recognised the traces in the sonic ink and it just transported them back to Christmas 1995. So I would say, yes, it is so time-specific, and I think that's one of its merits, I would say. And it's funny that we were talking um, about Doctor Who, because we <laughs> instantaneously have to think about being transported right. in time. It's, it's like, I mean, and Isabella even says, because I'm obsessed with Doctor Who, and she said about this music being like a way of travelling time, 
and then sort of looked at me like, this is what you've always wanted to do, isn't it? You know, like, it's so, very much so, why not? But, um, yeah, the Doctor Who and Chiptune crossover is interesting, because, I mean, there were, there are a few video games out there for, which were Doctor Who um, based for vintage consoles, but it's, it's just so, you know, the novelty of it as well, which fans pick up on, and I did read a few examples in my paper of, fans that would say things like, oh, a wild Dalek appeared, which, you know, is like a recognition of these traces, and then combining the tropes of both chiptune and video games and, you know, like RPGs and Doctor Who mm -hmm. into that, you know, such novel statements, and then other fans, you know, recognise those and enjoy them. They're, some of them are hilarious. And yet, of course, you know, for, for those media fans out there too, we have to remember that we're talking about mostly the Doctor Who of the reboot, Right. So we're talking about a reboot of, some, you know, we're talking about multiple layers of return. Uh huh. So we're talking about, you know, the, the modern Doctor, the reboots of the Doctor being sort of intimately related to the previous ones. And of course, they've made a bit of that in uh -huh. recent seasons as they were. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that's, that's also quite interesting, especially if you, because there was a, um, another example I played was Murray Gold's I Am the Doctor, which is yes. for the 11th Doctor in series five of the reboot and his story arc thereafter. Putting that in chiptune takes it so, you know, far back to before, you know, I don't know how old Matt Smith is. I mean, 12, I don't know, 12, 13. Yeah, he he's quite young. So probably before, I don't know. So before, he was a youngin. He was a youngin. So, but back before, you know, Doctor Who was perhaps rebooted because obviously the original series ended in 1989 so if it was you know like a, a mid-90s Sega Mega Drive aesthetic it takes it back to before it was rebooted you know so it's, it's really interesting um, and the example I played of my own chiptune is specifically um, for the theme of which was used from 1987 to 1989 which was originally arranged by Kath McCulloch which is a interesting name I think it is <laughs> it's, it's, it's also a mouthful I do apologize um so that also, I would, what I would hope, having that in an online domain, and it's on my SoundCloud, and people have understood it as, you know, they say, that, you know, the, the feedback I've had is that it takes them back to their days of video gaming or back to that time, and also, oh, you're a fan of the second, the seventh Doctor, right? You know, it, it, it identifies so you. These are the traces. And by I've, the way, people, that if if they if 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 George is taking them back to those moments. That he wasn't born for. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize. Well, as well, I mean, well, the seventh Doctor was my first because Dad had the VHSs. So, ah, gotcha. yeah, the wonder of VHS and the first time travel I, is possible. I think the first Doctor Who story I saw was ironically the last Dalek story of the original series, so, and that, yeah, so it's that's very much a part of my Doctor Who literacy. Is that you know they say, always say your first Doctor is usually your favorite that you keep with you. So Sylvester McCoy is very much my favorite Doctor. So in that, my chiptune of that theme, and it was very much pandering to a Nintendo entertainment system sound palette. So it was hopefully, you know, what I was encrypting in Sonic Inc. into that map was both the Nintendo entertainment system, its palette, its, you know, what its music would have sounded like, and also the Seventh Doctor, you know, his companion, Sophie Aldred, and such things in that era and that time. So hopefully that's what came across to these, my, my fellow chippies. It's the chippies. Yes. <laughs> Let's go down to the chippy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's oh, a, a familiar English expression. Beautiful. What, what? Let's go down to the chippy. Oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm slightly taken aback. Sorry, just I'm... because I've been no, I've, it, it's 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 lovely to hear, honestly, because I've been quizzed for most of the week now. On <laughs> things we say. I know too much so. for an American. <laughs> no, it's 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 beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Down the oh my god. <laughs> talking about this kind of wonderful intersection between the way in which some of these uh, chiptunes, th there are fandoms not just of solely chiptune, but then there are fandoms of other things, Doctor Who, mm -hmm. um, specific games in particular. Um, mm -hmm. We were just talking about Sonic um, and the fact that these things could bring you back so immediately in space and time. And what's interesting is Doctor Who certainly seems to be one of those things that lends itself enormously well? <clears throat> I would say so. I, I think it's also because Doctor Who is, you know, even with its different Doctors and different areas of the show are also quite time-specific. You know, I think if you make references to certain Doctors in their areas, that also carries, because, you know, the production values of the time, you know, the music that was composed for the show, I mean, we have people like Delia Derbyshire through to people like Dudley Simpson and then Kevin McCulloch and, you know, and, and all would have used what was technologically available at the time. So, you know, it would have been, um, you know, more music concrete in the 60s with Dina yes. Derbyshire, and then through to something slightly orchestral, and then synthesizers when it hit the 80s. Right. You know, so, and, then, and then up until the show ended, and then Murray Gold has taken over with this interesting mix of everything that came before it and also a new direction. So I think Doctor Who very much lends itself to that. Too. And I think, and, and I want to give a shout out to Lewis and B.B. Barron. B.B. Uh, Barron, one of the early pioneers of electronic music. They uh -huh. did the, the wonderful analog music concrete um, electronic score for Forbidden Planet. And I mm -hmm. think that set off so much science fiction in that direction. But one of the things that I'm interested in, so it, let me like, what other universes? So we've established that the Doctor Who universe and a lot of these specific game universes get linked very directly mm -hmm. into this. What other worlds? Are there other, are there chiptune Star Trek reworks? Are uh -huh. there, et cetera? It, it, you know, things like Blade Runner, you know? Tell um, me about that. So, yeah, there's, there is a uh, fabulous, if I'm allowed to plug them, um, on YouTube. They're called 8-Bit Cinema. So they will take a film, rework it through 8-bit as though it was a video game with you know 8-bit soundtrack and incorporating game mechanics. My favorite has to be Blade Runner because I love that film to pieces. Um, so it represents it like an RPG, and you follow Deckard throughout the city, and you know, and the pixels represent Deckard, and there's that famous scene where Zora crashes through the plate glass windows. But it's all done in these, you know, just barely almost recognizable. Would, would pixel, right, what uh, people know. would associate with Minecraft now, yes, those little right. blocks of... And the music, and a lot of Vangelis' score has been reworked through the chiptune aesthetic, which is fascinating, I think. Really? Yeah. So what Vangelis would have done... <laughs> no, just, such wonderment on your... Well, because I think of Vangelis and I think immediately of, of, of a, a, an entirely different moment in early music technology. Uh -huh. And yet, of course, it... 
then when you said it, it was like, well, of course, that makes yeah. so much sense. So all, you know, such things like, um, I think there's a chiptune version of the main theme. And I think somebody online, I once encountered um, Vangelis' Blade Runner Blues done through a chiptune aesthetic. I'm, I'm going to find that immediately. I, I will link you. But it was, it was, so what he achieved on the Yamaha CS80 was reduced to that really recognisable, oh, as a Egyptian fan, but, you know, that aesthetic, where that comes from, what it's representing. And for those of you at home who think all of this sounds fantastic, of course you can always find links in the show notes to everything that we're talking about. And today, since we've had, since we've referred to several authors and several really interesting articles, all of that information will be in the show notes. So you can go peruse to your heart's content libraries of this music, as mm-hmm. well as articles about all of the different things that we've talked about um, now, going forward in your research, as you look to the future, where is the nomad sonic cartography, you know, these wonderful metaphors that you have devised uh-huh. for organizing the cosmology of chiptune? And I think it's really at this point, since we've touched on machines, we've talked on we've touched on games, we've all of whom have separate creation stories and authors and you know the people who built the machines are not necessarily the people who programmed the games or not the composers uh-huh. who made the music so we have lots and lots of hidden authors and um bringing that forward in your research where do you go from here ultimately <laughs> you do, you don't have to ruin the punchline but we'd love no, to know <laughs> i was gonna say i was like i need a punchline um no no i well i was asked yesterday whether this use of nomadic subjectivity and the sonic cartography is speci- uh, whether I want to want it to be specific for chiptune and, and the Doctor Who examples, not at all. Good. I want it to, by the end of my PhD, not only do I want to analyse um, or use my framework and the sonic cartography metaphor for you know, this instance of chiptune fan identity and chiptune fandom, but I also want to make it workable for other fan studies. And even if it's this idea of cartography not necessarily for music but even as textual in some other way and even through glitch art perhaps if as, as a map of traces on you know what is being glitched the method of glitching it you know the and so forth so i think ultimately i would like to come up with a framework that could be used in you know in other fan studies but also not specifically for fan studies mm-hmm. you know it's for anything subcultural i think and so something, of course, because nomadic subjectivity recognizes the individual and, you know, as someone always in flux, but also someone who can, you know, is 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 other, but positively other. And is positively politi- other. politically charged and is capable of creating their own um, senses of, you know, places of belonging and affirming their identity. So ultimately, I would like to, you know, construct this unique framework that can be applied to other subcultures that not in any way objectifies the fans or sets them as, you know, what you were saying with the derogatory connotations. I, I want that to be completely out the window. Here, here. Mm, cheers to that. Cheers to that. <laughs> now, if you, uh, if any of our audience members have never heard a chiptune. Uh-huh. Oh, you're not you, going to ask that. <laughs> where do you recommend they start? Oh, Christ. <laughs> I guess I would start at 
examples within video games themselves. Okay. I would start with really classic examples of video game soundtracks and then possibly move on to original fan creations. If I had to recommend one now, mm-hmm. I would say, as a childhood gem as well, Toe Jam and Earl, Panic on Funkatron. You can buy me a drink sometime. The name like alone. Yeah, it's it's very much, it's like if Bootsy Collins programmed something on the Sega Mega Drive, or Genesis as it was known in America, excuse me. Sega Genesis. Sega Genesis, excuse me. The idea of Bootsy Collins on Sega Genesis fills my heart with it joy. Was, and some of the descriptions, I mean, like, well, I mean, I described June in my paper as like neon ice cream with kaleidoscopic sprinkles, you know, in, aud- in audible form. And this is, <laughs> Audible nine cat. Yes, <laughs> essentially, yes. And so this, it's, I totally recommend that. And also, perhaps some Amiga tracker music, perhaps the Chaos Engine, um, which was composed by Richard Joseph, who is sadly no longer with us. Mm. Um, that's a very, uh, sort of a steampunky inspiration there. So that's super cool. Um, yes, I'd say those are my recommendations. Yeah. I must also give, if ever he is listening, I must give a shout out to someone we lovingly knew back in the day of when I remember gaming on the Amiga as DVD, which stood for Dodgy Video Dave. And he used to supply us with <laughs> so many really dodgy copies of games on floppy disks. So if you are out there, wherever you are in the world with your Dodgy deals, thank you so much. We love you, Dave. We love you, Dave. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for talking to us. And uh, and thank you for being so um, delightfully uh, upfront. <laughs> oh, well, I get, yes, that's... I think a teacher described that once as one of my... It is absolutely one of your most positive qualities, and I admire it greatly. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.